The biggest driver is this notion of intent to return, right? And what does intent to return mean? That means if you had an amazing experience, you're going to tell people about it, but you're going to come back. And when you come back to my restaurant or my retail store, or my Parker resort, when you come back, that means I have to market less to people who are who have never come, right? So ideally, I would say, I'd like to spend nothing on marketing. I'd like you to be my marketing vehicle. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Well, it's been a while, but I would say it's fantastic. How are you? I'm good. Has it been a while? Well, I think since we recorded our last episode. I think so, yeah. It's been like, you know, at least a couple days. That's true. That's true. That's too long. That's way too long. (laughs) It's a long time. It's a long time. Matt, over the years that you have visiting, been visiting theme parks, attractions, leisure venues of all types, how much do you think you have spent, not, not just on admission, not just on you know, food and beverage, how much do you think you have spent on really commemorating those experiences? Ooh, so I don't know. I t- um as, as you can see again from my from my office, a lot of this stuff just came from, um, you know, parks that I worked at, the memorabilia that way. Um, but in terms of like buying souvenirs and things like that, um, I, I wouldn't be able to put a dollar figure on it. I, I, I can tell you what I've purchased the most of. What's that? Mugs. Mmm. Mugs. Tea mugs. Yes, exactly. Not coffee mugs. Not coffee mugs, but tea mugs. Um, <laughs> absolutely purchased most of those. Um, but, you know, even recently, I found that the way that I commemorate my experience um, is more through pictures than mm. it is through souvenirs. Unless I find something that is really, really cool that I know, like, I'm going to wear that T-shirt or, you know, going to use that keychain or whatever it is. But if it's going to be a souvenir, it's probably going to be a a mug. Yeah. And you brought up a good point there because every single consumer or every single guest that comes to into a theme park, an amusement park, a zoo, museum, uh, has a different style of the way that they commemorate their experience. It might be with a photo, which might mean that you probably purchase more ride photos maybe than the the average guest. You know, that, you know, that, that could be a, a very distinct possibility. Uh, and there are those who are more likely because of how big of a fan they are and how connected they are with the brand to purchase maybe a very premium item or a limited edition item that costs substantially more than maybe the traditional mug or keychain or something like that. Uh, and that's what makes retail really unique. Are, are you one of those people that would purchase something that would be in the upper echelon of the value proposition? I think that the answer is probably yes, <laughs> but 
I also am pretty good at grounding myself too and kind of like pulling my balloon back to earth. So, so a couple of months ago when I, when I visited Cedar Point uh, and the park is celebrating its, you know, 150th anniversary and oh man, did they do a very good job of creating merchandise that tailored to people who have a strong connection with the park and its heritage. And I, you know, not, not everyone is going to buy that $2,000 exact replica of the Millennium Force seat. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, for me, yes, I would love to have that. But at the same time, you know, that uh, wasn't going to be something that I was going to drive home with. But I did end up getting, let's see if I can pull it out quickly. I, I did get a pennant and this will probably end up on the wall back here, you know, sometime. Mm -hmm. So for those who are watching this on the video, this is what I walked away with. It was something a little more cost effective, but also was something that I was able to commemorate my experience and also my connection with that park and its history. Uh, but I think that that ties in really nicely with who our guest is today and the conversation that we're about to have with Kenny Funk, who is just an all around uh, really interesting, really inspirational uh, guest that we have on the podcast today. So what is really cool about Kenny is he's got this hypersensitivity to retail and I'll be honest, I'm an operations guy. You're an operations guy. That's kind of how we grew up in the industry. And in that time, I didn't give retail a whole lot of thought. But to hear Kenny talk about it and the way that an organization can really maximize their opportunities to provide souvenirs that people can take home with them, the tangible um, opportunity to ex extend the experience, you know, they're really should be a lot of thought that goes into it. And it makes me thankful that there are people like Kenny who are dedicated to merchandise and souvenirs and, you know, all those type of things that uh, can, again, help extend the experience that people have when they go to any kind of hospitality um, uh, place, for lack of a better word. <laughs> I, you know, when, when talking about that tangible component of it, uh, that you mentioned that you and I are both operations guys, uh, what it does remind me of is, when I took a detour out of operations into re retail and specifically photo retail, yep. when I left, uh, I left Universal Orlando to go open Legoland Florida, overseeing all souvenir retail. I remember sitting in my job interview and was asked, you know, why do I want to leave operations? I was working in guest services at the time. I had been working in attractions uh, and come into retail. And I remember saying something like, I, you know, I, I love, I love operations so much and I love uh, you know, rides, and I love being able to deliver a phenomenal experience. But now I've got the opportunity to really commemorate that and take something that I've always been doing from an intangible standpoint. And now here it is, here is you on the ride, here is you on the park and in the park. And it's very, very true of really all retail that it is that tangible reminder. Uh, and also that gratuity that guests leave after having a phenomenal experience. And that's something that we're going to dive in uh, with Kenny. So Kenny, I oversaw retail for Walt Disney World for 21 years from 1996 to 2017, uh, retired briefly and then uh, worked with Great Wolf Lodge for another uh, four years there and recently retired again. And now we have the opportunity to just have this amazing, uh, wide ranging, but also at times very focused conversation. We talk about retail, we talk about leadership, uh, you know, as, as two, I would say, you know, di distinct entities here and his philosophies on both uh, are just very powerful. Yeah, I would say let's get to it. 
Let's get to it. Here is Kenny Funk. Kenny Funk, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. How are you doing today, Kenny? Man, I'm doing great. Thanks, guys. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. So great to see you. So Kenny, can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about your time in the industry? Sure. Um, well, in the theme parks and resorts industry, uh, I started my career in 1996. I'm a, I'm a little bit older than that, but um, but in, in this industry, 1996, I started with the Walt Disney Company, uh, spent about 21 years there, uh, ran global retail for Disney, uh, strategy, planning, you know, product development, you know, all of those things for 21 years, uh, left in 2017. Uh, from from that role, uh, thinking I could retire, and uh, you know had a little bit of brain atrophy, so I needed to go figure out something else to do. So uh, Great Wolf Resorts called uh, growing business. Uh, we had you know 14 resorts at the time. Uh, we're growing pretty quickly to 19. Um, so I spent three years with them. Uh, left about uh, let's see, a little over a month ago, and uh, now I'm uh, kind of retirement. 2.0, but uh, you know, not long thereafter, I got a call from a, a group called the Magic Makers Group, uh, which is uh, 25 former Disney executives with about 500 years worth of Disney tenure combined across a variety of disciplines within kind of theme park and resort and other business management. So leadership development, team engagement, you know. Uh, consumer insight, data strategy, analytics, retail design and development, visual merchandising, communications, alliance development, blah, blah, so on and so forth, right? But, um, but I really, I I'm proud to be aligned with this group. I have worked with a bunch of these people over the course of my Disney career, and to a person, every one of them is as good or better than anyone in the industry in their field of expertise. So uh, really proud to kind of hang my shingle with those folks, I'm an independent contractor with them, and we've got a number of different projects working right now, but uh, exciting to, to be part of that group. So that's kind of the, the career arc for me and what I'm doing these days. Yeah, I think the statement of 500 years of combined <laughs> Disney experience, that's that's pretty cool. Because if you think of Disney itself, you know, you know Mickey Mouse, 1928, I believe. So that's, uh, you know, right. definitely a, a lot of a lot of experience and expertise that, of course, adds up to be way longer than, uh, you know, than, than the life of the company thus far. Uh, I mean, you get a prize for knowing what year Mickey was born. <laughs> hey, I, I know my, uh, you know, I, I know the stuff I know, at least I, I do my best. Well, these days I've been watching a lot of Mickey Mouse Clubhouse on Disney Plus, but uh, oh, yeah. you know, not not for me, but you know for the little one at least. Trying to trying to reduce the screen time, you know, try to control it a little, but occasionally I gotta gotta throw it on. Um, with your 21 years with Disney overseeing retail, I, I've got to imagine that retail in 1996 probably looked a little bit different than it did in 2017. Can you talk about maybe what that accelerated evolution may have looked like in terms of the importance of retail and the way that retail was delivered in the theme park experience? Yeah, so uh, yeah, retail has, has stayed the same in some respects, but then in others, as you might imagine, has materially changed uh, of late. You know, you think of the pandemic's impact on retail more specifically. So maybe maybe a few answers to the question. Um, so I'd say retail has changed in the sense that, you know, or hasn't changed, I should say, in the sense that effectively what's sold in the retail shops hasn't 
change much over the course of time, right? It's it's basic souvenir type stuff. It's keychains, it's hats, it's t-shirts, it's, you know, things like that. And everything park you go into around the world, you're going to be able to buy a coffee mug, a hat, a t-shirt, a keychain, you know, maybe some trading pens, things like that. So there's been little nuances here or there over the course of time, but fundamentally what's being sold in retail hasn't changed much. It sort of stood the test of time because those items are things that people typically use to commemorate. Um, a, a few things have changed though. Um, what's changed though is not with the company, it's with the consumer, right? So if you think about the essence of what's changed from a consumer perspective, um, we've all got one of these things, right? So really readily, if I go into a retail shop anywhere, either in a park or resort or in the wild, so to speak, right? All I need to do is pull up uh, the, this item or scan a barcode on an item. I can look at price, where it was manufactured, what the components of, of that product are, where, they were, where those components were sourced, where they sourced in a socially responsible and environmentally responsible way. I mean, you think about the power now that the consumer has, and, and that transformation has happened probably in the last 10 or so years with the advent of you know, the iPhone in 2007, sort of unlocked the power of the consumer. So that, that would be one thing. Um, I think the second difference is really a higher expectation of service and quality, uh, or, or maybe stated a little differently, the value for price paid given the choices that consumers have, right? So they're really keen, and you guys can think about your own shopping experience too. You're really keen on a really good price value relationship, and you stay loyal to brands that provide a good value proposition, and you walk away from brands that don't, right? And so that, that's been a bit of a transformation, and again, partially born of the education and, and the information that the consumer has at their fingertips. And then... I would say the third thing and probably the scariest thing to me is the socialization or democratization of expectations, or I call it FOBC, the fear of being canceled, right, <laughs> as a company. And that's a real thing. You know, we see it all the time uh, with companies who have maybe taken a risk on a product or an art style or things like that. And for some reason, there's a backlash and they just get canceled. Right. And so that, that's kind of a real phenomenon that, that retailers have to be very, very cognizant of because you never know what's going to cause a firestorm. Right. So those three things, I would say, probably have been the, the, the most material changes that I've seen over the arc of, of my retail career. Kenny, can you talk about some of those those items that, you know, I might walk into a souvenir shop or a, or a retail shop and think I would never pay $300 for that, right? But there's a market for it. Um, so beyond the, the keychains and the t-shirts and the coffee mugs, there are those high priced to some people, very high value items that are in the, the locked glass case, right? Can you talk about the evolution of those and how that has maybe you know, enhance the experience of people being able to take away a bigger piece of that experience that they had at the park? Yeah, sure, that's a, that's a good question. So you know, that, that was really, I would say probably in the early 2000s, uh, you know, early to mid uh, 2000s where 
again, the consumer was more educated and retailers just generally, but also parks and resorts retailers um, felt like they needed to have something that differentiated them. In other words, something that somebody couldn't buy on Amazon or couldn't go to like a you know, a Target or Walmart or whatever and buy that had a Mickey on it or a Woody Woodpecker or pick any other IP that you, you, know, you want to think about. Um, so it, it was, how do you differentiate parks and resorts? And I'll use parks and resorts as the specific example to your question. Um, how do you create something that's differentiated and that would yield a higher ticket price and that was so sort of out of the norm that it, that it sort of scratched an itch for the consumer but also it wasn't comparable or comparable, right? Uh, to anything that they could find outside, right? So if you think about, we introduced things like Swarovski crystal, right? So you think about those ear hats that had Swarovski crystal on them, 1200 bucks. We knew that there wasn't a market for every consumer to buy those, but if you sold, you know, 40 or 50 a week, that's a nice little niche and it's largely incremental because that guest was most likely not going to buy a regular ear hat for $9.99. They wanted something different, something unique and special, right? That kind of thing. Um, for the same reason, we introduced things like Dooney and Burke bags. So those co-brands with Swarovski, Dooney and Burke, Kate Spade, all those things that we introduced to the brand uh, were important in that sense because it captured a guest that would otherwise may not have spent as much on basic theme park souvenir items and we're likely to spend more from a collections perspective. The second piece I would tell you about that is the whole notion of limited editions was born as a result of this too, right? So even a trading pen, a souvenir trading pen that was like $8.95 at the time, I think they're up to maybe 12 or 13 bucks now just because of you know the price value relationships and the quality of the item. Um, a limited edition strategy on those types of things was huge because it got people into the game, right? It got people into collecting something. And I call it kind of the gift that keeps on giving, right? Once you give them the first pen, and a lot of times we would say, buy a lanyard, get, it, get two pens for free, one to keep, one to trade. So got them into the trading game and got them into the collecting game as well. And then further, we defined that customers had affinity towards certain characters. And you guys have your own favorite Disney character, right? Mine happens to be Gaston. I love Gaston <laughs> from Beauty and the Beast. He's boorish. He's an oaf. He's like completely over the top, but he's hilarious, right? So I'm like, I kind of like the guy. So I just collected pens. And so I've got an entire collection of Gaston pens. Well, that's the way consumers were purchasing and consuming those items. So we're like, well, let's just feed the machine. Right. Hmm. So that's how that kind of came about. But it was really born of the notion that how can you create a differentiator for the parks guests relative to what they could buy in any other num uh, other number of places? Sure. Yeah. yeah, no, that's really interesting. And, and particularly how you talk about kind of those premium items or those limited edition and making that great point of that you have no intention of selling these to the masses. You're not you know, you're not offering these because there are. X amount of millions of guests who are visiting every single year, you're offering because there is a very small percentage of those who are more likely to buy it than others. And with that said, then there are those other, I would say, lower tier or lower price items that are going to be more appealing to the vast demographics. And you kind of jogged my memory a, a little bit here when uh, 
when I worked for Disney several years ago, what I remember was I could be sitting at home watching TV and I could see a commercial come on for, you know, for Walt Disney World. Obviously, I was living in Orlando and uh, and I would see guests walking around in the commercial with the particular Mickey ears hat on with the balloon that has the Mickey head inside of it. And then the next day I would go to work and I would see more of those now in the park. So I, I, yeah. I could see pretty quickly, all right, there's this, there's this cross between marketing and retail of being able to uh, get guests to purchase more because they've, they've seen it on TV. And of course, those are the, uh, the products that are more available for the masses. Yeah, we uh, call that the, I always call that the double word score, right? Using <laughs> Scrabble parlance, I'm like, yes. Every time I saw one of those commercials, I'm like, buy more. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things too that uh, we've also spoken about in, in conversations that I, I think really ties in very nicely, um, you know, of course, when talking about retail, is you've said that retail is like the gratuity that guests leave when visiting a theme park. And would love to hear your explanation of that and, and what that means. Yeah, it, it is an interesting concept. Uh, so when, when you think about, you know, sort of simply stated, the overall experience at a park and resort in this context, or or could be a restaurant in the real world or a retail store in the real world or whatever, by the guest is viewed in aggregate, right? So they don't understand our org chart. And sometimes we confuse things and confuse people to think that the way we're structured is the way guests view us, which is not the case, right? So in, in the parlance of theme parks, the guest doesn't care who runs attractions and they don't care who runs retail and they don't care who runs food and beverage. They care that the experience is holistic and is really good, right? So if you think about that and, and that the guest views the experience in aggregate, um, then I'll use the example of a restaurant, right? So if I walked into a restaurant and the person who seated me was rude, they didn't give me a menu. When I got seated, they brought water, but they never filled the water glass. The steak that I bought or the chicken I bought or fish or whatever uh, that I ordered off the menu was cold when it came out. Uh, they never refilled my glass. They, you know, they were rude. You know, they dumped my drink in my lap and didn't apologize. Whatever. I mean, we've all had those kinds of a lot of service failures. <laughs> yeah. We've all had those experiences. So my question then to people would be, how likely would you be to leave a tip? Zero, <laughs> right? <laughs> you would be like, well, so a gratuity uh, or, or the tip, which stands for to ensure promptness, right? That's the definition of tip, right? Um, so it's if you got none of those things, the likelihood that you would leave a tip is slim and none, right? And slim probably just left town, right? And so... <laughs> Similarly, when you think about the overall experience in a great environment, like a, a theme park or resort, so as hospitality folks, um, I walked into the, the resort, everything was clean, or I walked into the theme park, everything was clean and orderly. I was greeted when I came through the gates. Um, my experience in the retail shop or the food and beverage when I got my QSR was great. The attractions, the lines weren't unmanageable because they had enough ride vehicles to do what I needed to do. So that full day experience was amazing, right? And my family was raving about the parade and, and right there by the Emporium on Main Street, I'm reflecting as a guest on, God, that was amazing. That was an incredible day. I want to go commemorate that, right? And so the way we think about retail, 
as the gratuity is if you've had an amazing experience, you're willing then to, to go buy a tangible reminder. That's a key term, right? A tangible reminder of, of the visit. So memories are by definition, very ethereal, right? But the tangibility of that is if I have a Mickey plush or in this example, a master's mug, right? I had an amazing experience at the master's start to finish, right? I got to be right next to Tiger Woods or whatever, right? And the experience was amazing. So I wanted to say, you know what? I'm willing to commemorate that experience with the mug that I bought. And that's what guests do with their disposable dollars. And if you think about your, your dining experience, back to that bad dining experience example, um, the most disposable of a purchase, the purchases in a restaurant is the gratuity that you leave, right? Because they're probably not going to give you a break on the food. They're not going to give you a break on any, right? But you have a choice whether or not you're going to leave a tip. Similarly, in a theme park experience or a resort experience, um, you're more likely to leave that tip with the most disposable of your purchases, which happens to be retail, right? Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it really is, you know, the the icing on the cake, right? When you when you take that home, you've got all these great experiences. And now, I mean, just look around my office behind me, right? All these tangible uh, reminders of all the experiences I've okay. had that um, that I want to put up there because I'm a visual person. I'm an everything out person. So I want to have that out there and, and be surrounded by that. And, you know, all of your examples so far, the pins, the mug, the t-shirt, whatever it is, that really does help extend the experience um, uh, for totally people right. about it. Yeah. And, and then the other notion to that too is, uh, you know, I think about the, the tangible reminder aspect of it. The lifeblood of any park or resort or business in general, if you want to think about that that way, and or a hotel or a restaurant or whatever, the biggest driver is this notion of intent to return, right? And what does intent to return mean? That means if you had an amazing experience, you're going to tell people about it, but you're going to come back. And when you come back to my restaurant or my retail store or my park or resort, when you come back, that means I have to market less to people who are who have never come, right? So ideally, I would say, I'd like to spend nothing on marketing. I'd like you to be my marketing vehicle, right? And so if I can do more of that and make what I call brand deposits, and you saw a posting I did on LinkedIn yep. yesterday around this notion of brand deposits. So if you got the entire team, the entire ecosystem believing that every single thing we do is a brand deposit or a brand withdrawal and make brand deposits consciously, the guest experience would be so amazing that theoretically everybody would return and you never have to spend a nickel on marketing. And the marketing budgets for parks, resorts, retail stores, restaurants are staggeringly huge because they've not yet figured out the essence that if they can just do better with the customers they have, they don't have to spend all that money and then they can put that money back into infrastructure, put that money back into improving the guest experience. Does that make yeah. sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and then even with that retail component of it, if I'm wearing that T-shirt out and about, that's a conversation starter right there. So now okay. I've I've spent money on marketing the business, basically, right. is, is what it is. I So if retail is the gratuity that people will leave based off of a phenomenal experience... Is it safe to say that the revenue and the per cap that the retail department generates is purely dependent on all other departments needing all other, at least front of house departments and back of house and many back of house departments 
firing on all cylinders so that the guest wants to enter the retail shop. Otherwise, you can walk out of a park, even if you had a good experience without spending a, a single dollar on, on, a, on a tangible reminder. Yeah, you know, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, while you're still going to do retail revenue because people bump into stuff occasionally and go, oh, I've always wanted a, a Pluto, you know, pencil wrap or whatever, right? And they'll buy it. But but generally speaking, um, I would tell you that there, there is a high dependency on the overall experience to the level of, uh, you know, I'll give you a great example. Um, when the pandemic was at its height, you know, and I stay in contact with people from Disney, Universal, SeaWorld, Six Flags. I mean, you know, being in the industry as long as I have, you know, just sort of bump into people, right? And you know people. Um, what we saw was that because the service was so bad and it wasn't because the people were bad at service, it was because the number of people weren't there to serve, right? In, in other words, the insufficiency of labor because of the payroll protection and, and the, you know, I call it the STEMIs, the government STEMIs that people would get. Um, it was difficult for people to make that choice. Like, well, I could either not take this unemployment extra benefit or I could go back to work for 12 bucks an hour. And they did the math and they go, well, I can make more money sitting at home. And so the upshot to that was that uh, theme parks and resorts generally saw a decrease in per capita spending because number one, they didn't have people to wait on them or serve them. And number two, it was just, there was just so many guests relative to the number of, of people that were trying to serve them that it was such a bad experience that people would walk. Right. Mm -hmm. and so that was a real dynamic. And fortunately now the, the labor has stabilized a little bit. Stimulus has, has sort of dissipated in many states. Uh, and now you're seeing people go back to work and that service improve. And therefore you see per cap numbers beginning to climb pretty significantly. And now I will tell you that uh, on a per cap basis or a, a per occupied room basis or whatever metric they use is kind of the denominator. Um, most every theme park and resort business and hospitality business now is seeing the highest per cap numbers that they've ever seen because people had that pent up sort of cash that they had and they wanted to go spend it, but they couldn't leave their house and now they can. So they're just basically consuming beyond belief. And so it was no different for us at Great Wolf and all my contacts in the industry have said the same thing. It's just like, man, if we could sustain these numbers we're going to have a record year, even with some disruption on attendance or disruption on, on occupancy, right? Yeah. Kenny, I, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the LinkedIn post about the, the deposits and withdrawals, because I had a, a note to ask you a little bit more about that. So since you brought it up, can you um, maybe go a little deeper into what those brand deposits are and what that might look like for, for a theme park? What what would that mean to them to make more deposits into, the, into their brand so that they could, you know, potentially not have to spend that much money on, on marketing? Yeah, so, yeah, I appreciate you asking that because I have a tremendous amount of passion about this, and I know that this is a this represents kind of a cultural wildfire if you can get everybody on the team engaged in this behavior. So, what is a brand deposit? What's a brand withdrawal? So, the way I think about it is every single interaction with a consumer in your ecosystem, right? Again, it could be an external retailer or a restaurant or a park or resort or whatever, right? We'll take an attraction as an example. So Space Mountain, right? I've got attendance at these attractions and 
a brand deposit for an attendant at that attraction at a pre-shift meeting as a leader, what I would say is, okay, today is all about brand deposits. How are we going to make brand deposits? Well, brand deposit is making sure the attraction is up and running. Brand deposit is making sure every car that's available to handle the volume that's predicted is, is available and ready to go and that is cycled through. I wanna make sure that all my systems and processes are up to, up to speed. I'm gonna make sure I have sufficient labor. And then on a real practical guest facing sense, I'm gonna pull every attendant in before their shift and I'm gonna go around the room and I'm gonna say, okay, today's about brand deposits. Hey, Matt, what are you gonna to do today as the front door attendant at Space Mountain to make sure we make brand deposits? And Matt, you're gonna go, oh, I'm going to call every guest by name. Well, how are you going to know their name? I'm going to ask. Okay. okay. So that's, that's a, well, one simple thing that Matt's going to do today is he's going to call guests by name. Hey, what's your name? My name's Sally. Well, Sally, let me tell you about Space Mountain today. It's a mate, right? And so you're making deposit, deposit, deposit. So everybody in that attraction sort of adopted that same philosophy that they're going to do something differentiated, something as a brand deposit, and that all those other systems and processes were where they needed to be. The experience at Space Mountain that day would be off the charts amazing, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the essence of, of deposit. And then the converse is withdrawal. So I say that, you know, with brand deposits and brand withdrawals, there is no gray area. Every single thing we do is either one or the other. It's binary. There's no like, oh, it was an okay thing. I'm not going to ding you too bad. Nope, that's a withdrawal. If somebody says, I'm not going to ding you too bad, that's a bad <laughs> thing. So you always want those things and, and you always want your team and your, 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 your cast members or your employees or your pack, depending on where you live, right, in the world of, of uh, theme parks and resorts. You want them focused on that consistently. And then you also want to reinforce that behavior and, and catch people doing something good. I think that's a really important notion. You know, we often as leaders sort of are trained to say, aha, I saw you did something that was out of policy or you broke a process or whatever. But rarely do you find leaders that say, I saw you doing something good. Hey, Matt, I saw you engaging with Sally today. That was amazing. Now, you may do other things throughout the day that violate a policy or whatever that I have to hold you accountable to. But I mean, just the, the wind beneath your wings to tell you that, man, you did something good. You made a brand deposit today. And so what I did was effectively, I don't, I think I might have shown you guys this the last time, but I created these little challenge coins. Can you see that? Yep. Yeah. So this is so this, this is from Great Wolf Lodge. Yeah, it says yep. thank you on it. Yeah. Yeah, this happened to be Great Wolf Lodge, but then on the back, um, it's basically there's a little write-up that says uh, we had a one of our core values was we show we care, right? And what this basically says is you got you've been caught doing something great. Each opportunity uh, or each interaction with a packer or a guest is an opportunity to make a brand deposit by showing we care. You just did that and we appreciate you being a role model and then I signed it, right? So effectively, when I saw these things happen in our ecosystem, I would hand one of these coins out. Now I will tell you, these coins are like gold. They're not gold, they're brass. But I mean, <laughs> you would think they were gold because I, I had people when I left the company send me notes that said, 
you don't know how huge that was. That sort of unlocked how I think about guest service, or that really helped me, you know, make a decision to stay versus leave or something simple like that. But it's just really as a leader, reinforcing that behavior, something tangible again, that really suggests that I saw you doing something really cool, really good. And I wanted to make sure you knew that I saw you do that. Yeah. And what I love about the process is that you're tying it back to the brand deposit, right? So it's one thing to say, hey, Kenny, you did a great job, but doing what? And then, and then what does it tie back to? So I love how you, you, you finish the circle, if you will. Totally right. Yeah. There's nothing I think less impactful than an ambiguous compliment, right? Like, great job. What do you want? Yeah. Um, so with those brand deposits, of course, there needs to be a disproportionate amount of deposits compared to withdrawal to have a, a successful you know, ecosystem or culture or guest experience. What would be an example of, of those withdrawals? Because with, withdrawals, I imagine, are, are also necessary as well once you've made all these deposits uh, to, be able to, to be able to justify you know, going to the ATM and, and withdrawing. Yeah. So, you know, I always hearken back to uh, Chili's restaurant like years ago, and they've subsequently changed it probably three or four times since then. But I loved their mission statement and their mission statement was very simple. Hot food, hot, cold food, cold, clean restrooms, money to the bank. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. Right. And so you think mm -hmm. antithetically, uh, to those things, like what's the opposite of hot food, hot, it's hot food, cold or cold food, hot or dirty restrooms, or you're not taking money to the bank. Right. So all, all those things would be considered like negative uh, to the brand. And so that, I, I use that as an illustration because it's really that simple. Right. So if you think about really coaching your teams in pre-shift meetings, um, I always focus on the brand deposit side, but I also say, are there, are there withdrawals that are going to happen today, right? Are, are there naturally things that we're going to have to recover against, you know? So you think about a, a, a resort that hypothetically has a water park attached to it. And I don't know of any that, that I've ever heard of, but <laughs> let's use that as, a, as an example. Um, if, if there's going to be four or five water slides down today, I should be able to communicate that to my team and say, look, this is going to be a general withdrawal or there's not going to be, you know, in a, a traditional theme park perspective, Space Mountain, Splash Mountain, you know, whatever are going to be closed today because of some safety concerns. OK, well, there's going to be some withdrawals because there's going to be some guests that are pretty ticked off that they paid one hundred and twenty nine bucks for the day and they're not going to have a fulsome experience. So. What that does is basically says to the team, now we're going to have to overdo deposits, right? We're going to have to really overwhelm the guests with deposits, even to the extent that if, if recovery means that, you know, we're going to give you a free hot dog at Casey, or we're going to give you, you know, a, a free pin trading lanyard, which by the way, we did before and worked very well because it got them in the ecosystem, right? So yeah. even though we had to give that first one away, we got them in the game and they bought more down the line. So it wasn't that big a deal in the great scheme of things. But yeah, so that, that's how I'd answer that question is that there's going to be inherent withdrawals that are going to happen in, in sort of the environment that you live in. But you got to coach the team that that is what's going to happen today. And there's going to be some guests that are going to, you know, 
comment about that. And there's going to be some guests that might even get in your face. And here's how to go handle that. Now, could there be brand withdrawals that are intentional and maybe aren't necessarily based on service failures? So if you put in all these brand deposits of here's that, here's that greeter in front of Space Mountain who's learning every single guest's name and providing that phenomenal experience. And that's you know one employer, one cast member out of many who are doing their personal brand deposits, uh, inviting the guest into the gift shop after that. Could that be considered an intentional brand withdrawal? Now, this is something that we're asking you to do, and you're going to be more likely to do it because we've made all these deposits. You had a phenomenal experience. Please leave us an online review. Uh, or even from a leadership standpoint of asking an employee to come in on their day off or working later to say, well, we're going to make all these deposits from the employee engagement leadership side of it uh, in the event that we might need to make a withdrawal later in the future. So give me an example of the withdrawal again. Um, if you uh, asking a, a guest for, for a positive online review, if they had a, a phenomenal experience. So you've made all those deposits of guaranteeing that. And now at the end of that, you're, uh, you're requesting positive public feedback in exchange for the experience that you just provided and the, and the overwhelming disproportional amount of deposits that you put, you put in there. Uh, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, uh, my perspective has always been on that, that if, if you get anything other than organic feedback, it feels forced and it feels like a withdrawal, right? And feedback in the form of a guest survey, if you sort of... You know, I bought a car recently and the, guy, the, the salesman says, okay, I need all tens or I'm not going to get my bonus this month. And I'm like, I'm not going to be compelled to give you tens if I don't think you were 10, right? Yeah. I mean, and so your point is well taken, but if it's organic, in other words, that, hey, there's an opportunity to take a survey, here's the link. You're not telling them what you want. You're just telling them that there's a survey and it keeps in the top of their mind. Well, you know what? I do want to give good feedback, not... I'm asking for good feedback. And the same thing in retail stores. I always tell people in the retail context that um, there's hot lava behind the POS counters, right? It's hot lava. You don't stand there. There's not a barrier between you and the guests. You need to stand at the threshold or the lease line of the store and what I call merchantane. It's one of those Disney hybrid words, right? So merchantane, you're bouncing a ball, you're playing with a puppet, you're doing whatever to engage the guests to come in. You're not saying, hey, you had a great experience today. Come on and buy some product from us, right? Normally you don't have to do that. So yeah, I could see how you, I could see that if that were happening, that would certainly feel like a negative. Hmm. Yeah. So Kenny, obviously you're very passionate about the, the deposits and withdrawals, but I also know that you're passionate about developing uh, your team members and developing other leaders. So uh, can you talk a little bit about how you've gone about doing that over your career and maybe even some advice that you might have for people that are kind of navigating their way through the, um, through, through the ranks of, of leadership? Yeah. So um, I would say that, um, you know, in short, I've always said that leadership is a customized exercise as opposed to a commoditized exercise. So the most success that I've ever had as a leader is when I've taken a one size fits one approach as opposed to a one size fits all approach, right? I think of a great story and I use this example um, a, a fair bit with leaders who I'm kind of coaching and trying to develop. Um, a lot of young leaders read great leadership books, and there's a tremendous number of great leadership books out there, don't get me wrong, but I, I think 
it, it they, they sort of get lost in this morass of, you know, how can I lead the entire team at the same time? And you can't effectively do that. You have to lead individuals, individuals comprise the team. So there's a great story that I often impart to these folks. And, and it's the story of a, a man who's, you know, out on the beach in LA, he's at a business trip and he decides he needs to go out and get some fresh air. So it's walking down the beach and down the beach, he sees what looks like somebody throwing things into the ocean. And as he gets closer, he looks around the beach and there's thousands of starfish laying around throughout the beach. He gets a little closer and he sees this young boy who's picking up these starfish and throwing them into the ocean one by one. And he asks the kid, what are you doing? And the kid says, uh, I'm saving the starfish. And the guy says, well, there's literally millions here. You can't hope to possibly be making a difference. And the kid, as he throws one more in, says, I made a difference for that one. Now, that's a really silly little story. But if you think about it from a leadership perspective, that's the essence of really good leaders, right? Is they, they take time to make a difference for that one, that single starfish or that single person. And it accentuates how I think I want to be remembered as a leader that I helped that one, right? So without thinking of each person as a unique entity, I think you're going to be way less able to be an effective leader. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. Uh, you've also talked about um, the philosophy that you have of using your heart, your head, and your hands as part of your leadership philosophy or your, uh, your leadership mindset. Can you walk us through that balance and how that makes someone a, a stronger leader by, by kind of navigating each of those three? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I think, you know, simply stated, I, I think, Finding the equilibrium between those three different aspects of who we are as leaders is probably the biggest ongoing challenge that most leaders have. Um, so a lot of leaders will say, well, it's a third, a third, a third. And so what does head, heart, and hands mean? Head is sort of the strategic side of things. Heart is sort of the human or people side of things. And hands is sort of the tactical or executional side of things. And when people try to say, I'm going to handle every situation with equilibrium, a third, a third, a third, they're going to fail immutably, right? So circumstantially, there are times when one has to rise up and take over, rise over the top and kind of take over. So could be counseling a team member who's going through maybe a real life challenge outside of work right? So that would be a time when the heart has to be supreme and the head and the hands sort of are subordinated in that sense, right? Could be customer issue that requires maybe some innovative problem solving. That's where the head and the strategy comes into play, right? And sort of superimposes itself over the heart and the hands, right? Could be rolling up your sleeves when there isn't enough labor to manage or run an operation, which we've all experienced over the past year and a half, right? So that's where the hands have to come in and say, hey, the strategy's built, you know, we got the humans to a degree, but I mean, I got to go in and I got to do the doing for now, right? And so that again, the head is the problem solving kind of strategic aspect of things. The heart is the human side and the, and the hands are really the tactical side. And I would say that the, the very best leaders that I have seen and those that I try to emulate are as adept in each one of those things as they are all the others. And they dynamically shift 
between them as circumstances arise. And as a result, they're viewed as kind of stabilizing or kind of a rock in a storm, if you will, as opposed to being sort of a, a victim of circumstance or, or I guess stated differently, kind of lending to the chaos or maybe even creating a little chaos. So certainly aspirational, but that's kind of how I think about it is how do I, how do, how can I dynamically shift between those things uh, and, and be kind of available in every aspect of that uh, sort of spectrum? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think connecting the dots to what you said earlier about, you know, one size fits one, there are people that you may have to be more conscious of the head, heart, and hands, you know, not just circumstances, but even people where you have to have to adjust the, the balance of that three-legged stool, if you will. Totally right. And that's, I think you're hundred percent right. If you understand that the notion that every person is unique and differentiated and, and that they're not a commodity, they're really a custom character or a snowflake, if you will, then you're better able to give them challenges uh, to motivate them. You're better able to give them projects that meet the needs that they have. And then, you know, what happens has been my experience in observing great leaders is, I mean, the leadership scores for people like that are off the charts. I mean, they are just exponentially greater than other leaders who are pretty good at one of the three things or maybe two of the three. Um, that, that's a big deal, right? Not that we're in it for scores, but scores indicate people's sentiment and, and sentiment about leaders is a big opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. One, one kind of follow-up I have to that is, you know, one trend that I've seen in, in many of the organizations I've worked with is kind of this concept of we have to do more with less, meaning that one leader that had 10 people, you know, now we're going to, to synergize those teams and now one leader has 20 people. And you get to the point where that same leader now has 100 people. And you can't, it, at least it seems like you can't do the one-on-one -on -one type of leadership anymore. So what is your advice or thoughts to organizations that have gotten to that place of, the ratio is way out of whack. How do you get them back to the right ratio, even though they're saying, hey, we're spending less on, on our leadership payroll? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I developed a, a sort of a core leadership tool uh, back right after 9-11. Um, and the, the, the foundation of it was, uh, you know, 9-11 happened and we all remember, remember kind of the visceral impact that that, that had on us. My dad uh, one month to the day later, which is coming up here in a couple of weeks, uh, fell out of a chair of a heart attack. <clears throat> and, it, you know, it sort of created kind of this existential crisis for me. And I was like, am I doing what I should be doing as a leader? Am I doing, am, am I fulfilling my purpose generally? And so I developed a curriculum called AIM, A-I-M, Aspiration, Inspiration, Motivation. And so the essence of it is, helping people identify what drives them or motivates them, which is the flame that burns within us. And again, to use the sort of Disney or poo parlance, we all know people in our lives that are Eeyores and we know people that are Tiggers, right? And so, you know, you think about any, anywhere on that spectrum in between. So helping people understand what drives them to do what they do and then understanding that as a leader so I can provide projects and or disciplines uh, that are appropriate for that person to feed that fire is a big deal. The second aspect of that is inspiration. So what inspires your team? Uh, and I always ask people, when did your fire burn the brightest? 
you know, as a leader, that's important to know because you want to understand how you can make people's fire burn bright all the time. If you got a bunch of bright fires burning on your team, you have a high functioning team. And then finally, aspiration. Uh, aspiration is what you want to be, not what you want to do. Uh, aspirations have no finish line. So you, you get really the essence of, of the aspirations that people have. I want to be viewed as the most competent person on the team. Okay, that's a good aspiration. I can then, as a leader, help hold you accountable when I see uh, behaviors that are counterintuitive to that. So that simple exercise, AIM, uh, throughout the team, so I do it with my direct reports, and they do it with their reports, and they do it with their reports, effectively then it, it sort of permeates the entire team. And as a result, everybody is given projects and or challenges that are aligned with what they want to do and, and what motivates them. Everyone is inspired as an individual, like one size fits one again, not one size fits all. And then everyone is in tune with other people's aspirations and can help hold the, the, the individuals and thereby the team accountable. So that's how I've kind of said, regardless of the size of the team that I have to answer your question, Matt, regardless of the size of the team, I don't think about leading that team any differently. And I think that's what the best leaders do is they don't shift based on the number, they shift based on how do they get that um, sort of notion or their leadership philosophy uh, permeated throughout their organization. Cool. Excellent. All right, Kenny, this has been a, so interesting. A phenomenal conversation. We really appreciate your time and we're uh, starting to run close to the end here, but curious if you have any final thoughts or words of wisdom for our audience out there. Yeah, you know, we, we talked a little bit last time about, you know, kind of the future of retail. And so, I don't know, maybe for the benefit of the audience, uh, because there, there'd be a lot of folks uh, listening that I think are, are in a retail role in some form or fashion in theme parks, resorts, or hospitality. And, and I would tell them maybe to watch out for a, a few things or, or maybe take advantage of a few things. So, um, number one, uh, convenience. Convenience is a value-added service uh, to consumers. So, to the extent you possibly can, let convenience be a differentiator. Uh, the best of breed retailers out there have figured out that convenience uh, means that customers are willing to pay a premium. And we think about our own shopping experiences and that's true. Think also about differentiation in a sea of sameness, right? We talked a little bit about that earlier on limited edition strategies, things like that. But companies have also begun to increasing, increasingly uh, develop proprietary products that aren't comparable in the market. And what that does is it gives a price value at advantage to the companies that are doing that. Uh, the third thing I would say is probably a notion that I call fish where the fish are. This notion of uh, if you build it, they will come, I think has gone by the wayside. So these big brick and mortar locations are giving way now, if you think about malls out there going dark, uh, but parking lots in malls filled with food trucks and or, you know, retail stands are popping up everywhere. So embrace the notion that, you know, you can fish where the fish are. It's going to require a little bit of capital and a little bit of thinking differently. But how do you take your products to consumers where they are versus expecting them to come to you? It goes back a little bit to that convenience. Responsible sourcing is going to be ever more important. Uh, so for all of you out there that are looking at sourcing products, make sure you understand the chain of custody 
of raw materials all the way through your supply chain. Because again, customers are more and more adept at understanding where you sourced your products. And that's a big sort of fear of being canceled uh, issue too. So just be very careful there. And then finally, you know, I think we're coming out of a labor quality and sufficiency uh, era out of COVID, but you know, think about automation and, and how you can sort of deploy automation to your advantage without taking the customer experience away. So I, I wanted to make sure that, you know, just from a pure retailer at heart perspective, that I shared those things and, and kind of where I see the future of theme parks and resorts and just general retail might be headed and, and food for thought for those folks. Awesome. Well, thank you uh, for sharing that, Kenny. We're so glad that you got that in. And, and like Josh said, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. So if people wanted to learn more about you or get in touch with you, where would you send them? So uh, Magic Makers Group is probably the best single source. So magicmakersgroup.com. Uh, I would challenge you guys that if you have any needs in, in any aspect of a business or any consulting needs on uh, how to you know, create some operational efficiencies or, or really kind of close the gap between a brand promise and operational excellence. That's the essence of what we'd be doing. Uh, again, 500 plus years of experience with a pretty, eh, it's a pretty good company, right? <laughs> Just uh, a small little company. Yeah, who, who knows how to serve guests and is world-class in a lot of different things. I mean, to have this group of people together uh, to, to really help uh, I think is a, a huge opportunity for companies that are maybe smaller or, you know, trying to hit that sort of next echelon of growth. Um, you know, a little time with the magic makers, I think you'd be sort of uh, well advised to, to give us a call. So magicmakersgroup.com and, uh, you know, happy to help in any way we can. So thank you for letting me plug that once again. Of course. Absolutely. Uh, Kenny, thank you again so much for your time today. Uh, of course, we absolutely appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to chat with you. And uh, as we wind this down, for everyone out there who's watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.